Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you for downloading this episode of We Got This with Mark and Hal. There are so many live shows going on right now. We just announced the Los Angeles show on Sunday, November 5th. That's right after the big Thrilling Adventure Hour benefit on the 4th. So people coming in are going to want to stay for our show. We're doing a double bill with Can I Pet Your Dog? And we do have a special guest for our recording. It is Lil Janet Varney coming back, making her return to We Got This. But we also have New York coming up before that. New York is just like... A week and a half away at this point. It is crazy. How do you get tickets? How do you find out where all the shows are? I'll tell you. You go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash we got this podcast. That is our Facebook group. There's an events link on the left-hand side that has all of our upcoming shows that you can buy tickets to. Get all the info and make sure that you're there to join us for all the fun. But for now, please enjoy episode 135 of We Got This with Mark and Hal. Hello, I'm Hal Lublin. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. Since the dawn of humanity, one issue has gone unsettled. With the fate of the world in the balance, we're here to settle once and for all. Best SNL cast member, 1975 to 1980. That's right. Don't worry, everyone. We got this. Podcast should have a theme song. Podcast should not have a theme song. Yes, they should. No, they shouldn't. They sound good. Yeah, but people are just going to skip past it. Hmm. You know what? You're right. We got this. Oh, Hal, it's an exciting day. I'm very excited right now. Uh, we have uh, a great guest on the show today, everybody. We are, we're both, you and I are both huge fans of uh, sketch comedy in general. Yes. And Saturday Night Live specifically. Yes. So we're going to talk about the first five years of Saturday Night Live, the original Not Ready for Primetime players. And we have brought in a guest, ladies and gentlemen, for this episode, a a an icon in sketch comedy who is going to help us navigate through this. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, he's one of the creative forces behind SCTV. Uh, he's worked as a comedian, a writer, an actor. He's a Second City alum. Uh, not only uh, does he know and has worked with pretty much all of the people we're going to be talking about, <laughs> uh, but he has hosted the show himself. He is Dave Thomas. Dave, welcome. Hi. <laughs> well, hello. Did you want something more profound than that? No, I think that's as, that's super profound. <laughs> as greetings go, the simpler the better, right? All right, good. <laughs> Just high with a period. The end. Hi. So, Dave, uh, the, the the weird part about this for me uh, is talking to you about SNL when I know you best for SCTV. But, of course, uh, you were there when all this stuff was was happening. So, um, yes. But before we get into, into that history, because you have so much experience in sketch comedy, particularly coming from uh, Second City in Toronto, I just want to talk about what you think makes a good sketch player because – You've, you are and have worked with, uh, some of the best that there are. Well, there's no question it's character. Mm -hmm. They have to have a good character going in. And the content of the sketch can be this, it can be that. And a good character can carry the whole thing and make it fly. If you don't have a good character, you're basically screwed and you don't have anything. So, um, I would say character is the main thing. It's always what worked on Second City Stage. And I think it, it's true of all television shows and series too. If the people like the characters, 
they like the series. They like they like the show. They follow it. When you're creating a character, what's step one for you? I didn't have a specific mo for creating a character. They always came from different places. Um, I did a character called Angus Croc on SCTV, sure. which was a Scottish guy based on my mother's father, who was a really obnoxious asshole that I had to grow up with. And But he happened to be Scottish. And so we went to Scotland. I learned how to do the dialect. So doing that character was sort of an easy get for me. There were other characters that I did that were kind of impersonation-based, like Bob Hope, and that was based on watching him, uh, watching his shows, watching his material, getting to a point where I understood him, and I thought I could actually get inside his head, and then I started doing an impersonation of him. But I couldn't do it unless I could get inside the character's head. There were... Plenty of impersonators, impressionists, I should say, who um, did different characters that I could, I could never do. I had to be able to get inside the character's head in order to be able to do that character on on camera or on stage. I, th- I think that speaks to something interesting. When, when you have a really good, well-rounded troupe, you need a bunch of people who's who have a slight overlap in skills, but also do a lot of extremely different things. Um, is that something that you would agree with? No question. I mean, I know that's true of, of SNL. Certainly, it was true of SCTV. I mean, John Candy did different character, different type of characters, and different characters than Catherine O'Hara. She did different characters than Eugene Levy, and Eugene Levy did. Vastly different characters than Rick Moranis or myself. So it was the combination of all these different approaches to characters that I, that I think built the show. Do you think it's essential? You know, a lot of people, since we're talking about SNL, uh, a lot of the performers actually wrote material as well. How important to being a good sketch player is the ability to, to write? And I asked that because that's that was sort of my training was writing and performing, and I always felt like that gave a better perspective, like a three sixty perspective into what it takes to make a good scene. Well, I know the inside workings of SNL, so that particular question or that particular theory applies, I think specifically to to Saturday Night Live. Um, the dynamics of the show are there's a group of writers and there's a group of performers. And the writers write for the talent skills of the performers. If the performers are writers themselves and can sit with the writers and talk the same language with, with, with them and do a character for them so that the writers can see, oh, I see how this is going to work. This is a gift to me. I can write this quite easily, and I'll submit this sketch. It basically ensures their 
appearance on the show as that character, and it gives them some space where they wouldn't necessarily have the space. So there's no question that being able to write and perform is an asset to SNL, and it certainly was to SCTV, too. So, you know, and that comes from the basic training ground for all of, for both of those shows, which was basically Second City, The Groundlings, um, well, those two were the only ones in the initial stages. Now it also includes UCB and some other kind of comedy sketch companies like that. Right. Did you find yourself so you you were a second you were a Second City person in Toronto? When, uh, when were you at Second City in Toronto? Uh, I started there in 1974 and finished in 76 when SCTV started. Right. Amazing. Um, <laughs> I, we're both such uh, such big fans of that show and the work of Second City specifically. Did you guys? So long ago. And I, I, of course. <laughs> it's just, I feel so old when I say that because when I started out, you know, I, I would meet guys who were in the business and were big 35 years before me. I actually did a movie with Henry Fonda. Yes. And Henry Fonda had done Grapes of Wrath in 1938, and I did a movie with him in 1978. And it was just like, oh, my God. This is like, you know, 38 to 48 to 58 to 68. This is like 40 years later. And I'm with this guy, Henry Fonda. And now I'm that guy. (laughs) It's not quite 40 years, but you are Henry Fonda to us, Dave. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, So... When you were at Second City, did you, I know that we, when we were, they've now, there's more of a, a school and like a curriculum to it and everything. Oh, yeah. Um, but when, so when we were there, it was mostly the way that we always created sketches was uh, we would just get up and improvise and the most fun improvised scenes that we had were the ones that we would be like, let's try that again. Let's try that again. And we would just craft them and hone them until they were a scene. Was that how you guys worked as well? Or yeah. did you guys... Yeah, absolutely. Oh, great. We would do the improvs at night, and we would audio tape them. We didn't have videotaping at that time. We would audio tape the uh, improvs, and then those tapes would be available to cast. And then during the day, when we were workshopping a show to try and put a show together, we would take these things that we improv and try to figure out Okay, let's do it again. This joke works. That that works. This works. That doesn't. Let's cut that. Let's do this. Let's do that. And what was the process? How long did you guys have from opening one review until the next review would open? Well, we usually we would usually run a review for like about a month, um, without having to worry about developing a new show. That was your reward. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you, you would got, get one month of not having yeah, to remember you your improvisations. You a month, and, then, and you didn't have to come in for rehearsals during the day, so you had to show up at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock at night for an 8 o'clock on stage. Oh, that's a nice and, month. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, the rehearsals would start, and they'd usually be about noon, and you would take improvs that you'd done from the night before, 
And you would start to work them and try to build them into scenes. And who was in your main stage cast with you? Uh, initially, it was um, myself, Andrea Martin, Catherine O'Hara, Dan Aykroyd, um, Ben Gordon, John Monteith. Did I say Andrea Martin? You did, did. say Andrea yeah. Martin. Okay, so that's that's it. Okay. And then Danny left about three or four months after we worked together to go do SNL. Because I started in 74, SNL started in 75. So um, then John Candy, who was doing a show in Pasadena, came back to Toronto and joined the troupe. So when Danny left, John came in and took his place. So the scenes that I've been working on with Danny became the scenes that I was working on with John. And I was fine. Yeah, they're both John, real talented John guys. Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and one in particular that I remember was called Scarborough Bluffs. The premise of it was two Canadians guarding Scarborough Bluffs against America because America was invading Canada. <laughs> and so we were talking about the lame-ass things that Canada had to defend itself and getting big laughs from the audience because Canadians have a very self-deprecating sense of humor and we're very into the fact that, yeah, when it comes to defending ourselves, we got nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just, as an started, American, I'm glad to know that Canada was the butt of your jokes and not uh, your neighbors to yeah. the south. Yeah. And and that that was a sketch that Danny and I started and then John and I picked it up and we actually worked that into a sketch that w worked its way into the show into a show. Wow. Um so now you mentioned the the schedule that you had over at Second City which sounded pretty lax. Uh the schedule for Saturday Night Live is pretty notoriously brutal. That was awful. Um awful. when you were there what was the what was what was that could you walk us through what a, a week was like there and your, sure. your relationship to that show? Um, you know, day one of the week, Monday, um, writers have got ideas and they pitch them out to the cast and some ideas die in the vine and some ideas have traction. And then day two is new ideas pop up. The ideas that had traction from day one are developed and either die on the vine or continue to have traction and and move from there. Day three, Wednesday, is, again, new sketches. And, um, and the, day is, the day is hideous. And the day is a clock that is based on Lorne Michaels and his particular style of... Well, at least this is the way it was in the late 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. Lauren's a real night owl. So Lauren would come in around 7 p.m. That's when his day starts. Oh, wow. Whoa. <laughs> and so then the writing would go on until 3 or 4 or 5 in the morning. And it's ba it basically fried everyone to a crisp. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. If but, no one else is keeping that schedule, he's like, what, what do you guys mean? It's a 10-hour workday. It's not terribly strenuous. Yeah. It just happens to be the yeah. opposite 10 hours from everyone else's workday. 
And Lauren is sleeping 10, 12 hours a day. <laughs> but the rest of the cast isn't because they're trying to get stuff in the show. And, you know, anyway. So that's Wednesday. Um, that's the brutal day. There, no. Thursday and Friday are more brutal than Wednesday because then it starts <laughs> to get serious. Wow. And, you know, um, that's when stuff gets cut. That's when things that people thought were, was good isn't is deemed to be not good. And that's when some of the politics of the show click in and the people who are really good at lobbying for their stuff and making their stuff happen. Get things in. The people that aren't so smart and aren't so savvy about the politics lose things that might have been equally good, mm -hmm. but just die. And Friday is when it it's like, okay, now it's real. Things are rehearsed. Um, camera rehearsals and everything is kind of set there there's more material than is needed for the show on Friday so everyone knows things will be cut and then Saturday is D-Day and the rehearsals in, in the afternoon things get cut and people are pissed off that their stuff is gone and other people are very happy that their stuff is in and then it's the show and between dress and air there was always two shows at SNL. There was Dress, where they would try the show out, and there would be often significant changes between Dress and Air, where Lauren would deem that things in the Dress rehearsal didn't work, and he would swap them out for other things, and that would become the things that end up being on the show that was aired on the live show. So I I would say... The most terrifying nights, the most terrifying days in the SNL schedule are Friday and Saturday. Sure. Because by then, the, the train sort of already pulled out of the station, yeah. and you got to make it work. Without, a, without question. And I, I wasn't part of that show. I didn't host it until much later. Right. But, um, but I was friends with Danny, close friends with Danny, and we... I was there for a lot of the stuff, just visiting as a guest and witnessed it. So I saw this stuff going down. So all the stuff I'm telling you is things that is kind of firsthand account, firsthand account from someone who was there as a witness. And, um, and then getting feedback from Danny about the more intricate sort of political things that were going on. Um, so I, I have a pretty good sense of the way the show went in the first two or three years because I was there for some of it. Yeah. And then I was friends with people who were there who would tell me stories about things that happened too. Well, um, because you were there for this and you just described this pretty brutal, um, this pretty brutal week. Um, I think that, you know, when you work in an ensemble, that is that sense of ensemble and community is, a big part of it. Uh, I know that you are, uh, you, you, you said you were friends with, uh, Dan Aykroyd. So I don't want that. I don't want your friendship to color this answer. Were there yeah. any particular performers that you thought 
in that era that they excelled so much off screen that 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 w- would benefit the show in in good ways. Like if there's someone who's just like, oh, that person is a light. Every room they walk into, this we know whatever we got to get done, we're going to get done. Well, I'm kind of biased, here <laughs> of course, sure, because <laughs> and the, and the reason I'm biased is because I worked with Aykroyd on stage in Toronto. And I saw him. Do, l- l- let me tell you a little bit about his background, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He w- when everybody that I saw on stage in Second City and SNL and everything else had they owed something to somebody that came before. You know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody, somebody would have some Jack Benny stuff to them. Somebody would have some Johnny Carson stuff to. Somebody would have some Jonathan Winters stuff to him. Rob Williams, for example, totally owes his act mm-hmm. to Jonathan Winters. Yeah. There, there were a number of comedians that you would look at and you would go, yeah, yeah. If you were a student of comedy, as I was, you would look at and you'd go, yeah, yeah, I know where they're from. When I first saw Danny Aykroyd and Valerie Bromfield blow into Toronto, they did something I had never seen before in comedy at all, ever. Danny played these blue-collar characters, and he played them not the way they'd been played prior to him playing them, which was just, you know, they would play a plumber in um, sketch comedy shows prior to SNL as a stupid guy. The plumber's a stupid guy. He he's gonna he's gonna be a guy that you know shows the crack of his ass um, when he bends down, which Danny did. Sure, but, but he recognized but, the fridge that he was working on when he did yeah. it as a classic. And but Danny did exactly that. Danny knew the PCV pipes, the plastic versus copper. He knew the fridges. He knew all the stuff, the details, and he fed that into his improv, and he gave that plumber dignity that it didn't have in the old sketches prior to him on the scene. He brought a type of blue-collar comedy, not just with blue-collar, but with priests. With anyone he played, he had the the reference level that he was able to give it a three-dimensional character um, perspective that it hadn't had prior to him on the scene. And I watched him on stage, and I went, holy f- shit. Sorry, I know you guys don't swear to me. <laughs> it's all right. I, I, I had never seen anything like this before. This was totally new and totally smart. So when Danny went on SNL and he did things like, the, the you know, Lauren like the bees. Oh, let's do the bees again. Lauren like the coneheads. Let's do the coneheads again. The Blues Brothers. Let's do the Blues Brothers again. Those kind of recurring things. And Danny had a big part in all of those things. The Czech Brothers and things like that. But he also did things like Fred Garvin, male prostitutes. Oh. You know, things like that that were just so bizarre and so unusual that you you went, holy, E. Buzz Miller. I don't know if you remember this character. Oh, he oh, was sure. the, uh, the charlatan... Uh... Uh, yeah, he, the toy manufacturer. Yeah, the toy manufacturer. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He manufactured dangerous toys that <laughs> injured children, and and then defended it with 
a reference level and with a degree of smartness that made you laugh because you thought, well, yeah, that's the way that guy would really talk. So I really think that he brought something to SNL that wasn't part of comedy before him and that he's my favorite SNL performer because he created this incredible volume of stuff, you know, that he was the writer of or the co-writer of and that he revolu- he was part of a revolution that changed comedy in 1975. So, you know, Eddie Murphy didn't come on the scene till 80. Right. He's in the sixth season of the SNL. Sure, the Gene Domanian so five, There were five seasons before. And I actually was a guest. That was when I guest hosted, when Eddie was on the show. And Eddie was great. And, and Eddie had a um, magnetism that the audience loved. He came out, everyone cheered and went nuts. And he was a star. There's no question about it. And I thought he was great. But prior to Eddie, Danny was the king of SNL, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, let, let's let's jump into to, to this original cast. Um, we're not going to really sure. jump into the featured players too much because this is really is about the people who made up the the, the repertory. I would Dan like Aykroyd. to give a quick shout out to one person on this list being a current United States senator, though. That's pretty sure, amazing. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Al. <laughs> yes. Oh, Al is a wonderful man. Yes. You know, I did a show called The New Show in 1984, mm-hmm. which was Lorne Michaels, in between his stints on SNL, had the, did this show called The New Show. It was a really great show in terms of writing. The writing staff, here's some of the people who were on the writing staff of that show. Jack Handy. You know who Sure, yours, yes, right? of course. Deep thoughts. Um, uh, Gamble and Pross, Tom Gamble and Max Pross, who later went on to S- uh, The Simpsons and other things. Um, Buck Henry, Steve Martin was a regular writer on that show. Um, uh, of course, Al Franken and Tom Davis. It, I mean, this is it was in this is a pretty golden Jim era County. of comedy writers. Yeah, it was Jim Jim Downey. It was an amazing writing room, and the stuff. George, oh George Myers, who is the genius behind The Simpsons, yeah. a a really really smart guy. So now was this team pulled from the original Saturday yeah. Live or brought to the later one? Both. Oh, okay, it was pulled from the original and brought to the to the um, later. So. Uh, Lauren did this show structurally very similarly to SNL. So I, I had a second opportunity to kind of watch Lauren at work and see what he did and see how he played the room and how he, how he worked with the writers and the performers and things like what that. What was your, what was your take on Lauren Michaels? I love Lauren. I think I think he's a really incredibly smart guy. Here's a story that I think kind of crystallizes it. Um, 
the new show didn't do well. And it didn't do well for a number of reasons. Buck Henry feuded with Lauren over that show and ended up having a falling out with him about it over over the show. Because Lauren wasn't really invested in the show. Lauren really had decided when he did the new show that he wanted to get back that he wanted to get Saturday night live Saturday Night Live back. So we started at Studio fifty seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, at CBS Studios on 57th Street in oh, New York. Okay. And um, then Lorne got managed to work a deal where he got into 8H, which is the SNL studios at Rockefeller yeah. Center, on off time when Dick Ebersol, who was running the SNL in Lorne's absence in that period between Lorne's first running of SNL and his ultimate taking over the show. And Lorne was gradually working to squeeze Dick Eversole out and taking the space up. And um, Wait, so, you, so you guys were moving into, he had a deal in place to move into 8H or you guys were go, you guys were, no, doing he this. worked it. He knew the NBC guys and he just said, uh, I'd like to get into that space. I need 8H. If 57 isn't working for me anymore for the new show, they gave it to him. They just gave it to him. Wow. And so, because they knew that off hours for him were regular daytime hours. They were like, yeah, okay. Yes. So anyway, this, the show did lamentably badly because Lauren put no effort into it. It was also on on Friday nights at 10 o'clock. When everyone's home. Yeah. Yes. So it, it was just a disaster. And we were 67th out of 70 people in the ratings. And I remember I went into Lauren's office because Lauren had brought me into this show saying, I'm going to make you a star. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I was like, okay, well, that's all great. And... <laughs> And I, I stormed into his office with the ratings in my hand, and I threw them on his desk, and I said, 67 out of 70. Well, that is fucking lamentable for the so-called genius behind SNL. I cannot believe that you have, are just wasting our talent, wasting all the all the brilliant people who are working on this show by not giving it the push that you could give it that would make this show a success. And Lauren kind of smiled and he looked at me and he said, you know, it's true. These days, instead of waking up and thinking about what a great comedy sketch I would like to do the, today, I think about what I want to eat. Jeez. <laughs> and I burst out laughing. I did not expect that answer. That was, that totally sidelined me. It was like, holy, what? I came in here. Think about what you want to eat. I started laughing. That was Lauren's greatest skill. He knew how to diffuse the anger of the performers who worked with him and make them team players, you know? Yeah. He he knew how to take your anger and just poke it like sticking a, a, a spike into a tire, totally deflating it. And he was always very nice to me when we did the show. He brought me to New York. He gave me, got me an apartment. He took care of my wife and he, he did everything 
that made my life easier. And then he was this guy who would show up at 7 p.m. Jack Handy, who was a writer on that show, Jack was an 8 to 5 guy. Jack would write his sketches and he would go, tell Lauren to go fuck himself. I'm not going to be here when he shows up. <laughs> Jack was like, Jack would write his two sketches, put them on Lauren's desk and leave. He was gone wow. at 5. Lauren wouldn't show up till 7 p.m. And he, by the way, when he showed up at 7 p.m., he didn't show up to work. He showed up to tell everyone that he was going out for dinner with Mike Nichols or <laughs> Steve Martin or somebody like that. And he wouldn't be back till 11. And that's when the day would start. Oh, my goodness. So it was, it was nuts. But here's the thing. Despite all of that, I love the guy because he was really... I thought he was really incredibly smart. And I thought he really... But I was sad that for the new show that he didn't give it the juice that he could have given it that would have made it the show the show a success. Yeah. And the reason for that is because he had another agenda. Right. He really wanted to get back to Saturday Night Live. He needed to get Dick Eversall out of there. There was some political stuff going on that, you know, I wasn't privy to. And... When he did get it back, he came to me and he said, Dave, I would like you to be a producer on the new SNL. And I said, and by this time, I had been executive producer on a couple of shows. And producer is not as good as executive producer as a credit television. Mm, sure. I said, well, Lauren, I'd rather be executive producer. Uh, well, why don't you talk to um, my uh, talk to Bernie Brillstein about that? So, I I had Brandon Tartikoff call me, who was then president of NBC. Yeah, yeah. They said, Dave, Lauren is offering you a producer. I said, I want an executive producer. They said, Lauren won't give you that. Lauren is the executive producer of the show, and he's the only executive mm. producer. He will not give that title to anyone else. I said, well, then I don't want to do it. And so, so <laughs> I passed yeah. on that job. And it went to Jim Downey. Jim Downey became the producer of the mm -hmm. show, which was fine. I love Jim. Jim's a great yeah. guy. But I just didn't want to do it because my worry was that if the show, if Lauren came back and the show tanked, he would blame it on the producer, me. And if the show came back and it was a success, he would take all the credit because Lauren was a master at manipulating the media. He really, he could play the press like nobody's business. So there was no way that I could compete with him there. He was going to be the guy who would be taking the credit if it succeeded, and I would be the guy who took the hit if it tanked. So... And I, at that time, I didn't know. I didn't know which way it would go. Well, that's, go. and that was, I was just going to say, it seems like I, because I've grown up in a world where it's, a, it, you take Saturday Night Live for granted. Right. You assume it will always be there and will always be funny. I mean, it ebbs and flows, sure, but there are, you know, every election year is going to be yeah. a banner year. You know that there's always going to be something going on and you're always going to find cool new comedy people. And, and we're always, we're now we're used to the cycle where, Every five years or so, the cast turns mm -hmm. over and then the reviews turn and they say the show's going to probably get canceled yeah. this year. There's no way that they're going to be able to bounce back. It happened 
uh, after the all-star year that Lauren put together on his return when he had Robert Downey Jr. and Anthony yeah. Michael Hall and Demetra Vance and, and all mm-hmm. those people in the cast that it was uh, unsalvageable. And then out of the flame, out of the wreckage grew Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon and Phil Hartman and, and, and the show gets reborn. And that's the, and, and the one, the, the one thing Lauren understands is that NBC works on sh- shows that are kind of big, big name brands. Mm-hmm. There's the today show. There's the Tonight Show, and then there's Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. And these are brands that endure. And there's hosts, you know, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Well, Johnny's gone, and then somebody else takes over, you know, Jay Leno. And then after Jay Leno, you know, somebody else takes over. These brands endure even though the, the personalities change. That's something that Lorne understood really well, and I think he knew how to play it, and he knew how to work it. And, he, there, you know, uh, you, you can go online and say, uh, celebrities' net worth, and you can find Lorne's net worth is like $350 million or something <laughs> like that. I think he deserves sure. every penny of it because I think he's a really smart yeah. guy, and I think he figured out not just how to do a sketch comedy show, but how to put it on a network, how to play the network brands to their kind of smartest and 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 most productive, you know, um, delivery of an of a audience to the advertisers. But 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 he also understood how to deal with the personalities and the people that he would be playing with, and how to diffuse them. Like 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 I said, he did with me, where he took could stick a a pin in a tire and deflate it in an instant and cast members who were like in a rage and angry with him would end up walking out of his office laughing going i love that guy (laughs) well i think one of the other incredible things about snl as a brand is this idea that whatever age you are you have a cast that is your cast and it is everybody there's always disagreement as to what is the best era so Right, and I think we all remember our favorite era being better than maybe it actually was, or or at least we we elevate it in our minds. That being said, well, that's true. But you know, I got to tell you, there are guys that came after Danny yeah. that I look at. Like I look at Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell is a great comedy star. He's he's amazing, and the stuff that he did, I thought was brilliant. You know, there's. Tons of guys that follow Danny on in that brand SNL that I think were really brilliant and funny guys, but all of them were forlorn, and yeah. all of them had the same battles or the same problems or the same understanding of Lorne. There are plenty of people like you know Mike Myers who did his impersonation of Lorne. You know, in his movies, mm, yeah. and, um, Mark McKinney did Lauren, I think, and from the Kids mm-hmm. in the Hall. There, <clears throat> there are people who have impersonated Lauren over the years, and they're all fine impersonations, but they only scratch the surface of what was actually Lauren, because Lauren was this guy who you could do an impersonation of Lauren, and at the same time he would chuckle and smile, 
acknowledge your impersonation and get you to do what he wanted you to do. <laughs> well, uh, I, I want to go back to Dan Aykroyd for a second, just because sure. I'm a huge fan of his. And I, for, for the exact reason that you were saying and that Mark was pointing out as well, that all of the characters he plays are three dimensional characters and his ability to assimilate information into a script and into dialogue. I mean, it, look for anybody who's a fan of the original Ghostbusters. I, my understanding yeah. is that all of the technical stuff in that was Dan Aykroyd and he was the only one who could Without say it. Doubt. Like he just he <laughs> rattles it off. Yeah. I, I did work years ago for a software company. I did a bunch of industrials for them and it was all software uh-huh. stuff that I didn't know. And for me, the key, like I knew I'd done it well if I did it like Dan Aykroyd and I could deliver it like this is, this is my language. I know it back and uh, backwards and forwards, except for me, I feel like Dan Aykroyd just knows all that stuff. Like he just has this frame of reference that he brings to everything he does, he does that that's stupendous. And he's the, the uh, original, in my eyes, utility player and that he could do anything on that show from a broad character or a broad feeling character down to being an incredible straight man and, and yeah. then mixing them in things like Fred Garvin, where he's a, 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 the ultimate straight man who happens to also be a male prostitute. Interesting term, utility player, that you would coin that and refer to Danny as mm-hmm. that. And I'll tell you a story about that because that is actually quite true. When we were doing Coneheads, there's a scene where Danny... And Phil Hartman and I, I'm the, I play the leader of the Conehead yeah. on the, on their planet. And Danny's in the scene as Beldar and, and Phil Hartman is in the scene. Lauren walked on the set and Lauren said, I am in awe. And it's like, what? You're in awe? Get the fuck out of here. You're never in awe. <laughs> what are you in awe of? And Lauren said, I'm in awe because I'm in the presence of the three greatest utility players in comedy of our time. And it's kind of a backhanded compliment because, you know, nobody wants to be a utility player. Everybody wants to be a star. But the reality of it was Belushi was a star. John Candy was a star. You know, Phil, uh, you know, um, uh, Phil Hartman and Danny and I were utility players. We were the guys who could be in the star sketch, play with them and, uh, compliment them and help them look good, but we weren't the stars. And, and that's true. And it, it was kind of, you hear it from Lauren Michaels and then you go, Oh God, as much as I hate to hear it, that's probably true. Well, I, I so, do have to add, let, let me just throw in, uh, in your, not even defense of you, but you are in one of my favorite SCTV sketches of all time, which is the Cruising Gourmet, which is just <laughs> you. And it's sta- like, yes, you and, 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 and Dan Aykroyd and Phil Hartman are all able to serve scenes really well, which is just the hallmark of, of a good, like, if anybody who's in a troupe should be able to serve a scene, but you mm-hmm. also have the ability to break out and be the star, which I, I don't know that that always necessarily translates back. I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, you know, um, here's another reason why I list Danny as my favorite. 
Danny went on after SNL to do movies, things like that. And he never, he, he never really quite, I don't think he really quite found his niche in movies until he did, uh, Drive Miss Daisy. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden there's Danny in a very convincing, dramatic acting role where he plays a character and he gets a supporting actor Oscar nomination. Nobody else in SNL's got that. He's the only one in SNL who ever got an Oscar is nomination. He, is that true? He was the only SNL cast member ever to get nominated for an Oscar? Yes. Huh. That's true. So, you know, you got to say, all right, this guy's got something. When you look at him in his character in Pearl Harbor, where he plays the, you know, Defense Department guy who knows that the Japanese are going to bomb Pearl Harbor, he plays that with real authority and conviction. And there are certain things he was able to play and certain things he wasn't able to play. But, you know, he he created Blues Brothers, Coneheads, Czech Brothers, Danny and I wrote Spies Like Us together. Oh, man. Um, (laughs) He created so many franchises after Saturday Night Live that were huge brands. And uh, that, I think, you know, nobody else from the cast as a writer-performer has gone out not Will Farrell, not and no one else has not Eddie Murphy. None of the other guys who emerged as big stars were actually writers who created brands like Ghostbusters, like Blues Brothers, like Spies Like Us. That was Danny that did that. And so that's why he's my favorite, because he did something that none of the other cast members do. Well, let, let's see. You know, one of the, one of the things we struggle with on this show sometimes when we're making a decision is separating what is yep. our favorite from what is the best. And there are times where they're the same. So let's assume right now sure. that Dan Aykroyd is on the top of the hill and mm-hmm. let's look at some of the other – I mean – these, this is like the murderer's row of sketch players. At, in that all of those sketch players murdered someone in Studio 8H at, at some point yes. in time while yes. they were there. That's what the chairs are made of, the bones <laughs> of their victims. That's why they're not so comfortable to sit on everybody. But they do swivel so you can see everything. Um, let's talk about the guy who is probably known as his partner in crime, which is John Belushi, who's a guy where yep. – uh, you know, he would have been in Ghostbusters, presumably, had he lived. We don't know. We don't have the the – the really long view of what he would Well, he would have been in Spies Like Us, I know that, because the, I was, we were writing that for Danny and John at Universal. And um, that was going to be Danny and John. And then John, of course, died, and they ruined it for all of us. <laughs> but, um, what a jerk. But and then, then the project went into turnaround, died at Universal, and ended up being revived at Warner Brothers. But that was originally written for Dan and John. Um, I don't know that Ghostbusters was written specifically for Dan and John because John was gone by then. And I think that I'm not sure that John was ever part of that conception. What was it? I mean, John Belushi is one of those guys with, again, you can trace the lineage of like, if you are a fan of Chris Farley, then you should go. If you're not aware of John Belushi or he's just a name you've heard, you need to go see his work Mm -hmm. because he really did inspire uh, not only uh, an entire generation of performers, but also a very specific type of Mm -hmm. high energy, um, but just the ability he had to, I don't want to say take over a scene because I think that that's negative, but 
He no, he did. He he would take over. Certainly at Second City stage. Yeah, he'd take really, over. a tornado without a doubt. I mean, wh- yeah. what was he? What are his strengths, and and do you think he? Where does he stack up next to Dan Aykroyd in terms of being an uh, an SNL player in this period? Well, I I think it divides quite simply this way. John was a performer. He was not a writer. Danny was a writer and a con- conceptualizer. So Danny fits the Second City mold of being a writer performer better than John does. John was just a performer. John was a great performer. There's no mm-hmm. denying that. And very magnetic and uh, charismatic performer. But Danny was a writer performer. So John couldn't come up with Blues Brothers or Ghostbusters or Spy Like Us or any of those things. That's not... he. His mind didn't work that way. That was Danny who did that. John was the guy who'd walk into a room like a tornado and take Mm -hmm. over the room. So, you know, Danny knew what he could get from John. And John knew what he could do. But John was conflicted. John was also trying to do other things. John wanted to be a dramatic um, male lead. And, you know, things like... um, The Continental Divide. Yeah, exactly. He was shooting that while we were writing Spies Like Us. And it just, it shows the actor struggling with the way he's buttonholed by Hollywood and what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Bill Murray went through a very similar thing and struggled with the way he was buttonholed by Hollywood and what he wanted to do, you know? And... It's it's a tough thing for an actor who thinks he can do more and who has a a design on his own personal career or what he wants to do. But, um, you know, there's a classic case in point where there's a movie called Neighbors that Danny did with John. And I, I was in Jamaica with Danny when Neighbors opened. And it tanked. And... John was furious, and he dumped it all on Danny. And it was terrible, because John had a temper, and John could John could be a mean guy, you know, mm. at times. And John um, dumped it all on Danny, that it was Danny's fault. But it was John's idea that he wanted to play the straight guy, and he wanted Danny to be the crazy guy in right. Neighbors. And this was something that they were doing that was kind of different. And it didn't work. And then when it didn't work, John dumped it on Danny. And I, I, I always felt bad that, you know, um, that Danny had to take heat from John over that, yeah. you know. There were, there were times when, when Danny, when John and I butted heads. We, Danny and I were writing a, a UFO movie that almost got made. Uh, Phil Alden Robinson loved the script and was going to do it. But then, of course, Spielberg's Close Encounters was in development, and that killed it. But um, John came to me, and he said, I don't want you working on Danny Danny on this um, stupid UFO thing. You're you're taking up valuable Blues Brothers time. Wow. And I said to John, well, I said, John, Danny's a big boy. He can budget his own time and decide what he wants to do himself. You're not the guy who decides what he does, and I'm certainly not going to listen to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was just, and it was like, 
but but John was John was a bossy guy. He he wanted it to be his way, you know. And if it wasn't his way, he'd get pissed and off. He sort of as that juggernaut of talent and charisma that just kind of storms into a scene and is unapologetically and always John Belushi, uh, much like Eddie Murphy was later on. These are great, great performers yep. and a thing that Saturday Night Live needs. Other things that Saturday Night Live yes. needs are the utility player, which I, I got to go back to something you said before. I don't think that the, I don't think the utility player is at all a backhanded compliment because maybe for an individual sketch, calling someone the utility player, but over the course of, if you, if you're called one of the greatest utility players, considering a massive collection of sketches, that to me is as a sketch performer is more important to be more useful in more things. Um, but I'd like to move on just a little bit, uh, because we have two of those sort of that alchemy that, uh, Lorne Michaels could create to put together a cast. You've got two elements of it. Now you've got the, the original utility player. You've got a juggernaut of talent and then you've got the mouth of the show. The, uh, the original weekend update anchor, Chevy Chase. Yeah. Um, which yeah. was another important part of that alchemy. He was there for a season. That's the thing. And he's a, he's a highly misunderstood, uh, commodity in SNL's legacy. How's, how so? Well, television is a medium where people like to look at a good looking host. And go, oh, yeah, that's the guy that's talking to me. I like that. Tell me more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Chevy was good. That was Chevy. Chevy was the good-looking guy that could be a smartass, always kept one foot out of the scene, st stayed a little bit out of committing to the reality right. of the scene so that he could be the ironic kind of eye of the audience in the scene. And... um but but the audience connected with him, you know, the audience related to him. And and Lorne Michaels understood this and was trying to get the cast to do this. They're called in television in ones. And an in one is when you sit at a desk and talk to the audience directly to the camera. And that's your your link to the audience and your your communication with the audience. And that's a very, if when it works, it's very strong and it's very visceral and it connects excellently with the audience in a way that the sideways performances of characters in a sketch does not specifically connect with an audience. And, you know, I'm talking about the eye lines of the characters in a sketch where they're looking at each other and playing, uh, give me that stick. No, I'll kill you. You know, um, the Chevy Chase was, did a lot of stuff in that first season where he just did, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. And he looked specifically and directly at the camera and connected with the audience in a way that none of the other cast members did. That's why he emerged as a star. Yeah. And Lauren totally understood that. And Lauren was poking the other cast members and trying to get them to do that. But they didn't want to do that. They were like, no, 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 that's bullshit. That's the old TV. We're new TV. We're we're the not ready for primetime players. We we're gorilla TV. We're doing right. something different. And 
and Lauren was right and they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why Chevy had emerged as a star of the first season. And most people think Chevy was in the show longer than that, but he was only in the show yeah. for the first season. And then he was gone. Yeah, that's the, you that's know? the to chase so a girl the, to Hollywood, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind right. of the crazy yeah. thing about him that, that speaks volumes is he is the, the the first breakout star of SNL. Mm-hmm. And, and we do sort of remember, oh, he surely he was there for all five years, even though anybody who is a fan of the show knows that he and Bill Murray didn't really, they weren't there at the same time, except when Chevy came back to host and they got into a fist fight. What do you know about that? Do you have any <laughs> stories about the fist fight? Well, I was there, so. No! Oh, yes! Jackpot. Jackpot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, 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 part of this is you don't want to tell sure, tales of, of people that you know, but you know, those guys clashed because it was just yeah. egos, you know. And it was just like who's better, who's funnier, you or These me. These are all strong, and, strong personalities at the top of their game. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Bill was a tough guy. Bill was not a guy, you know. There's a, an actor named Dick Blasucci who worked on SCTV as a writer. And he was in the cast of Second City in, in um, uh, hmm. Chicago. And he's, a, he's, he's deathly afraid of water and he can't swim. Don't throw him in the pool. I mean, it's just like, that's, that's what Bill does. Bill is this side to him that's a real tough well, guy. Well, we all kind knew, bully, though, like, you know? at Second and, City, he was legendary for his uh, taking a heckler into an alley and beating him up during a show. Broke his arm. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's, that's not a fake story. That was in Toronto. Really? When our, my cast, our cast went to Chicago, and Bill and Betty Thomas's cast came to Toronto. I remember that, hearing about that trade. We had hecklers constantly in Toronto, and he just had to deal with them. Well, Bill didn't like that. Bill jumped off the stage, grabbed a guy, took him out in the alley, and broke oh, his arm. Wow. Broke his arm. And then Andrew Alexander, the owner of Second City, had to do some real uh, sort of pol- politics on this guy to keep him from suing <laughs> and shutting down the theater. Uh, so... Bill well, had that side and, to him. And so, now, now that we're talking about Bill Murray, he's another one of these guys who could uh, play all sorts of characters. Unlike, and maybe that's why he clashed with Chevy so much that uh, Chevy Chase was always playing yeah. Chevy Chase. Even when he was playing Richard or um, uh, Gerald Ford, he was Chevy Chase just saying Gerald Ford's lines and falling down. Without Without question. Um, yeah, you're absolutely good, right. uh, as a as a contribution to the cast. Um, I know he wasn't there at the very beginning, but uh, Bill, can you talk a little bit about what Bill Murray brought to that? That when Chevy left, how Bill filled the vacuum. Well, you know, Bill's this bigger than life character who can come on. He had the same sort of presence as Belushi, so he was able to come into the show. And enter a scene with real charisma and, you know, take over. And, you know. It fills in that same arc. Odd that they would uh, replace what I guess eventually became archetypes. It's like, wait, you already got the, uh, you already got the Belushi. You need a chase now. You replaced a, you were replaced a chase with another Belushi. But Belushi was on his way out already and Lauren knew that. Yeah. So Lauren, I think Lauren hired Bill because he knew, he knew he needed another, uh, human dynamo 
in in his cast to kind of be the electric presence that Belushi was. Um, it was evident that Belushi was going to be moving to movies and things like that, and Lauren knew he's going to lose him. So I, I think it was a very smart move on Lauren's part to cast Bill because Bill could definitely fill uh, those shoes and then some and create all kinds of new characters and bring, you know, tremendous strength and dynamism to the show. My understanding of, of Bill Murray initially when he was on the show was that he wasn't connecting with audiences until he did that first microphone soap on a rope sketch where he's in the shower doing a version of what would become, I think, Nick Leva, the, the lounge singer where he interviews mm-hmm. his wife and the man that, that she's sleeping with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was really him letting his personality rip. And he's got a different energy to him for sure than Belushi did, even oh, though they're sure. both like, like magnetic kind of people. Like, you know, but Bill Murray did a pretty good job as a, as a weekend update anchor. Imagining John Belushi as a regular anchor of a weekend update segment, it doesn't quite no. uh, compute the same way. No, done. Uh, Bill, Bill had skills that John didn't have and John could never have done the weekend update. No question about that. And Bill, Bill's lounge singer, was like, I remember hearing that and going, what the hell? He can't even sing. I was just like, I was shocked. But I didn't understand why that connected so well. That's something where there's a hole, a hole in my info system of being able to figure out Bill and his particular talent. But people loved that and just connected to it right away. And... You know, Paul Schaefer's a really good friend of mine, and Paul mm-hmm. ended up being the accompanist for Bill's Lounge Singer. Right. <laughs> um, he to, Paul just said, you know, Bill, it it was just he he couldn't sing, but it was a, a magnetism that allowed him to blow his way through a song. And yeah, it felt like it always felt like the guy that got up in yeah. the bar and grabbed the mic who wasn't supposed to. That's right. But everybody loved him, so they let him do it. That's oh right. yeah, my, my father, when I was a child, would walk around the house singing "Star Wars," <laughs> nothing but Star Wars, like that. That was that's indelibly part of of uh, pop culture. But I I, uh, I want to jump now from Bill, who while he's an outstanding player, I, I just don't think he measures up to Dan Aykroyd in terms of what what. Dan Aykroyd brought to that cast, but I do want to talk. Uh, I don't think she'll win, but I do think Jane Curtin. Oh, I, yeah. I don't think she's. I think she's not maligned, but not remembered Unsung. for as good as she Unsung, was. Yeah, yeah. She as her, a straight man, she was one of the all time greats. Yeah, she uh, the sketches she was in would not have worked as well, or maybe not have worked at all without her as the counterpoint. Mm-hmm. Without question. And she seemed like the square about, among a bunch of cool people. And counterpoint's a good thing. Point, counterpoint, which she did with oh, Dan Aykroyd. Jane, you ignorant <laughs> slut. You know, she she was a fantastic straight woman. A classic. You know, in, in, in a class with Betty White and better. And, you know, I, we all appreciated and understood Jane's skills. And, uh, you know... I never lowballed her. I always thought she was fantastic. And if she'd been in SCTV, she would have been fantastic in our show too. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. And I love, uh, by the way, just talking about point counterpoint. The eventual callback to that when she was co-hosting with Bill Murray and tried to do the same thing, but he refused to engage aggressively <laughs> with her. Right. He just, whatever she said, he just agreed a hundred percent. It was just a great that yeah. she again she carried that 
her half of that beautifully and made it work. And that, like, I think people who, especially when you're young and you first get into doing any kind of comedy, specifically improvising, you, all you do is go for the laugh and you think that the key is being the biggest and yep. broadest person. But if you can, if you're good at playing st- the straight man or straight person, mm-hmm. that is such an important skill to have. And now that you're rounding it out, so you've got Dan, you've got Bill, you've got um, Jane Gilda. Sure. Gilda? Yeah. Gilda was very unique. There was nobody quite like Gilda. I met Gilda in Godspell. I was in the cast of Godspell with um, all those kids. In the Toronto production, yes. Yes. With Eugene Levy, Martin Short, Andrea Martin. Victor Garber, Andrea Martin. Who, I'm a huge Victor Garber fan. Yeah, of course. So. (laughs) Did you snicker at that? I'm a big Broadway nerd. (laughs) I didn't snicker. I loved him. My favorite role of him was in Titanic, the architect of the ship. Yeah. Yeah. So, or Alias, good God. The guy's, he's he's incredible. So, Gilda was this, she had that uh, nickname of America's Sweetheart. And she was, I think that's what she was. And mm-hmm. she had these chocolate brown eyes that would just melt you if you got close to her and you could see, look at her eyes. You go, oh my god! And she, she was just delightful. And she had lots of characters that she could play, like Emily Lutella, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, and 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 also she she played victims really well and she played you know uh, um bill murray's girlfriend really well lisa lupner lisa lupner i mean there were so many characters that she played and she played them so well so i mean here again is all right imagine lorne michaels and he's like 1975 he's gonna he's managed to sell this show to nbc and he has the he has them give he he gets the right to go out and get a cast. He doesn't have to do a pilot. He's gonna do a show. And that in itself is an achievement with a network. Yeah. And yeah. and then he goes and he casts and he starts looking for people. So he picks Gilly Radner, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi. I mean, just think that's that's such brilliant casting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I can't tell you. So whatever anyone says about him, he is the heart of the show. He's the guy who's put it together and made it work from day one, and gets a, and deserves all the credit. I think. Yeah. And um. And then the cast, they're all great, and they're great in different ways, and. Although Dan, I picked Danny as my favorite, and the guy that I think was the, my personal favorite and the and the best because he was a writer and a performer, you can't ignore Belushi, you can't ignore Bill Murray, you can't ignore Gilda, you can't ignore Jane Curtin. They're all monster talents in their own right. Yeah, and even I mean, look, Garrett Morris was a very talented guy who very talented, not the, maybe not the best fit for that show. 
but he's I always liked him well. on the show. Yeah, he was great. I thought his I did too. his abandon with which he tackled everything is so funny. Yeah. Um it's just everything is loud and done at a hundred thousand percent when yeah. Garrett Morris did it. Yep. And Lorraine Newman too. God bless her. Adorable. And you so know? talented. So, I, I think they didn't I mean, it's hard to even though she was on the show for all five of its uh, She was a kid, year. right? When she got yeah, on. Yeah, she was very young, coming yes, out of LA, the first groundling to be on SNL. But uh she you like the, the the depths of her talent, they didn't even begin to mine them. And it's hard because look who else you're in the cast with. But there's mm-hmm. there are no weak cast members in that cast. That being said, I think if we're looking at the at the very best of that original era, it comes down to two people, in in my opinion. This is and this is what, what I thought just from the beginning, mm-hmm. that it was gonna come down to Dan Aykroyd or Gilda Radner. Would you agree with that, Dave? Yeah. Yep, I would. Mark, what do you think? I would agree with that as well. I thought I assumed you were going to say it comes down to Aykroyd and Belushi, and I was going to be ready to fight for Gilda Radner in that. Be- but I now I don't have to because, boy, she like if if yeah if that's what we're looking at if we're looking at the difference between the the original utility player Dan Aykroyd who could do anything, um, Gilda didn't write on the show, which I guess is. Like what I think may put uh Dan Aykroyd over as the the greatest original not ready for primetime player is the fact that he did so much writing and creating on the show. But Gilda also had that there's something about her that like you just and you just sense her and she seems like the glue of the fans and the world. Like she's a she's a maven that connects everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I just rewatched the very first episode, yeah. which if you are listening and have not seen it, I mean, it's an interesting look because they haven't quite figured out what the show is mm-hmm. yet. The cast is, is really, uh, they're, they're all supporting. It's really all about George Carlin and Janice Ian and Billy Preston and mm-hmm. who the guests are. They do what, what you would call in Second City blackout scenes in general that are very short. But even with that, and they're all, you can tell that they're all super talented. There's something about the, when you see Gilda on screen. She's so just that she funny. Hops almost explode. Like you just, you fall in love with her. And yeah. I, can't, I can't even imagine, you know, you were describing Dave what it was like to be in a room with her that you would just see her. And th- there was something that drew you in. She had a, she had a charisma and a magnetism that was completely different than what Belushi or, or Murray had. So I guess the big question is, does that magnetism that she had, does that override or supersede the, the wealth of talent and, and skill that, that Dan Aykroyd brought to everything he did on that show? No. All right. There you go. Well, <laughs> there, <laughs> I'm, I'm no. 100% okay with that. I am too. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the writing is a huge part of it. Right. Then like, yeah. like you, you mentioned before this, this ability to do anything. I think the utility player is always going to be the MVP. Yeah. So, uh, we've reached our decision. So this is, uh, in, in the grand tradition of our show, Dave, I will give my missive to all the listeners so that they can, uh, disseminate this information across all the lands and say, people of the world, we've done it. We've looked through the first five years of 
one of the most iconic, if not the most iconic sketch series of all time, still going strong 42 years later. And the alumni of Saturday Night Live is is incredible. And we'll continue to go through the history of the show to pick out other highlights and and best cast members of all time. But in that original group of, of not ready for primetime players, which is, again, just a Mount Rushmore of comedy, the guy who stands at the top of the heap is the guy who does it all. He may not have been the flashiest, but – you cannot imagine what that show would have been without Dan Aykroyd. It is, it is impossible. And I would even say this above, above even a Chevy Chase or, or a John Belushi, because I think the cast would have figured out at some point how to become stars. But the things that Dan Aykroyd did, anything from an oversized Jimmy Carter at Three Mile Island <laughs> to the Bassomatic, uh, 1976. There is a specific sketch that yeah. I'd like you to add in your rundown. Please. And that is a sketch where they parodied something that really happened, where Nixon got Henry Kissinger to come and kneel with him and pray with him. Yes. Belushi played Kissinger, and Dan Aykroyd played Nixon. And it was a brilliant and definitive portrayal of the terribly flawed and crazy president named Richard Nixon. It was wonderful. There you have it. And that's, that is the magic of Dan Aykroyd is he gets so deep and creates such a three-dimensional portrait of whoever he's playing, whether it's an original character or an impression. And again, coming back to Jimmy Carter talking a guy down off of an acid trip on a call-in show that he's doing. Uh, just yes. <laughs> such an yeah. incredible performer. And that, that is why he, he is the best of the original not ready for primetime players asked and answered. Thank you to Haley Thompson, who was the one who, who suggested, uh, she suggested best SNL cast member of all time, but we don't have nine hours to say right. talk right now. Um, but we do. Yeah. Dave Thomas does Dave not Thomas have said, nine hours. Dave, thank you That's so true. much for joining us. What a treat. My it goodness. was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Uh, please tell everybody, uh, anything you want to promote, uh, anywhere you want people to go or want them to buy or do anything, please, the floor is yours. I ha have absolutely nothing that I want to promote right now. <laughs> um, if some of your viewers, okay, here, I recently put together a benefit show for my brother's son who had a terrible snowmobile accident January 7th and was rendered paraplegic. And oh, I asked some of my buddies, Marty Short, um, <clears throat> Danny Aykroyd, um, Rick Moranis, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, the kids in the hall, um, Paul Schaefer to help me put on a benefit show in Toronto and raise money for him. And they all did. Wow. And we did That's that great. show about, I don't know, three, three weeks ago. And the site is still up. It's Jake Thomas, um, GoFundMe Muskoka. And if any of your viewers want to contribute to that or listeners want to contribute to that, that'd be wonderful because he's facing a life now. He has four kids. He's facing a life that um, he has to reinvent himself, find a way to make a living to support his family, and at the same time come up with all the, the special needs that he has as a paraplegic. That's going to be really tough. Can so, you spell Jake Thomas Muskoka? Yeah, it's Jake Thomas, J-A-K-E-T 
T-H-O-M-A-S, M-U-S-K-O-K-A, Muskoka. And it's a GoFundMe. So just do GoFundMe, Jake Thomas, Muskoka, and you'll come up with the site. Okay, we'll, we'll be sure to take that link and put it up on our uh, Facebook group. Right now, this, this episode is not coming out until later, but we'll put it up now. We're recording this in August, so I will put it up and explain. And, and uh, right. if it's still up then, give what you can. Uh, you know, it's every little bit helps. I know mm-hmm. from friends who have done GoFundMe, I know Mark and I are both going to give money uh, for sure. Uh, but please do that. And, um, that'll be at our Facebook group. So if you go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash we got this podcast, um, you, you can find it there. Uh, that's also obviously where you go to, uh, submit topics for the show. You can also do that in email. We got this podcast at gmail.com or check us out on Twitter at we got this tweets or you can visit the maximum fun subreddit. A flame war could be happening one of these days. That's right. Uh, thank you to producer Ken Plume, uh, which is the reason why Dave Tam- Thomas is here talking to us right now. Uh, thank you to graphic designer Uri Kelman, QA engineer Jen Alba, and researcher Kate McManus. Thanks, as always, to our musicians, Jonathan Dinerstein and Mike Furman, for our score and theme song, respectively. And thanks, of course, to you, our listeners. Without you, you wonderful people, we wouldn't get to talk to our heroes about the things that we are passionate about. Thank you, Dave Thomas. For Hal Lublin, I'm Mark Gagliardi. For Mark Gagliardi, I'm Hal Lublin. And don't worry, everybody. We we got got this. this. We got this. There is a new series of Star Trek coming out, and MaximumFun.org has submitted to our blackmail and agreed to host a new show on the network. We're calling it The Greatest Discovery. We've got photographs. We have recordings. (laughs) We have web browser history on everyone at Maximum Fun. Those are the things that have allowed us to have a second Star Trek show on Maximum Fun. There's no way they're happy about this, but we will be recapping every episode of Star Trek Discovery, all 15 of them as they come out over the fall and winter. And uh, we hope you'll join us by going to MaximumFun.org and looking for The Greatest Discovery or looking for it wherever you download podcasts. Hey, this is Griffin McElroy. Hi, this is Rachel McElroy. And we've got a new podcast on Maximum Fun called Wonderful. Wonderful. It's an enthusiast podcast where we talk about things that we're excited about and things that you're excited about. Things like overalls. 24-hour Sudafed. The grand prize game. The fact that wombats use their butts to kill predators. The soundtrack to the movie Dick Tracy. The beach potion we call Bud Light Line. All these things and more every Wednesday. And we'll also talk about things that you're excited about. You can find us on MaximumFun.org or iTunes or wherever. I don't know. Just search Wonderful. Google it, you'll probably get there. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.